Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a reminder, we are in a series this summer. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians all year. We're taking a breather in the summer to look at Old Testament stories that tell us what it means to draw near to God. And we will pick back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that first Sunday in August. While you're turning there, uh, two things. One, uh, we've had a really great summer here as a church. The Lord has been blessing New Hope, and it's been great to see Many people, uh, I mean, last night, if you were here and stayed for the, if you were part of the fireworks, you saw that. It was incredible. It was just like this incredible evening. I went home and told my wife, like, there's honestly no other place in this world I want to be than at New Hope. Uh, this feels like an outpost of heaven. Like, this is it. This is what it feels like. It's, it's just a really neat evening last night. And we've seen many people come to New Hope and been placing their membership here at the church throughout the summer. They've gone through our starting point class and uh, we've, we've met with them and they're ready to place membership and they do. And, and one couple that placed membership is celebrating a milestone um, as, as a couple. And uh, J.K. and Edna Mae Stevens, um, they were a part of our church years ago. As a matter of fact, J.K. served on staff with us here uh, at New Hope for, for many years and then moved away. And now they've come, the way they would say it is they've come back home and they placed membership here at New Hope again. And uh, they are celebrating 50 years of faithful marriage uh, this week. And so we're really excited for them. If you know them, send them a message. Yeah. If you know J.K. and Anna May, I'd encourage you to send them a message. The other thing is this. It's a little different uh, this week. We had services last night. We normally don't do that. And we've had all the kids in all of the services. And we've done that on purpose. Some of you aren't happy about that maybe, but uh, it's been awesome so far. And the reason we did that is this. We want to make sure that we have opportunities throughout the year where the kids get to come in and see what the adults are doing. We're not just doing like a kid's service, as you can see. And we want to make sure that it's intentional that the kids get to see what their parents are doing when they worship. Like, this is important. Our goal in this would be that God would go from being this concept to being the ultimate reality of your entire family. That everything would center around worshiping Jesus. And so when they get to come in and see that that's where your heart is, it makes a big difference. And we want to make sure that we continue... And to do that, make God go from just a concept, something we know a lot about, to the ultimate reality. And so on that note, that's kind of where our text is leading us uh, today. Let me start out by saying this. Have any of you ever had a dream that you were convinced in the dream, like this is real, like this is not a dream? Anybody? Any show of hands? Anybody ever? I'm like that. My wife will tell you I've had many dreams where I get up and go do things and I'm still asleep. Uh, it's weird. She's got used to it 15 years in. She's like, oh, he's doing it again. Uh, but it, it's, it's this thing. Like, it just happens every once in a while. But the most vivid happened before I was married. Uh, it was my sophomore year of college. I've shared this with you before, but it, it fits too well. Uh, sophomore year of college, I'm at Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. And that's where I went to school. And so I get there. Sophomore year, I decide I'm driving from South Florida. I want a roommate I don't know. I just want to meet somebody new and just live with someone I don't know. I had roomed the year before with one of my best friends, and, and I'm going to room with just someone I've never met. And so I make the drive. It's about a 17-hour drive from where I lived to Knoxville. I get to the campus. It's about midnight. I go in. I meet my roommate, his first time we've ever even seen each other. How you doing? My name's Kevin. How you doing? My name's Rob. Uh, Kevin, I want to tell you I've unpacked enough out of my Jeep to make my bed. And I'm going to go to bed, and then tomorrow we'll do this thing where we just, you know, we meet each other, and we set up our room, and I'll take the top tonight, and, and we'll just go from there. I said, all right. Well, about two and a half hours later, the room is dark, and we are completely asleep, and I have this dream. And this dream felt extremely real to me. And in this dream, the biggest spider I have ever seen in my life crawled out of the ceiling tile. And I'm talking like horror movie spider. And there it comes, and he lowers himself onto my chest, 
in the middle of this night, and I tense up. Oh, no. Like, and it's there, and it's crawling down, and you can just picture what that felt like, right? And then it goes off, and then it gets on the wall, and it's going to go down the wall. And I did what any normal person would do. I rolled the opposite way, right off the top bunk. Boom. And I hit the ground, and I get up, and remember, 2.30 in the morning, it is dark in the room. You can't see anything. I start grabbing my bedding and the mattress, and I pull it off the top bunk. And I said, I forgot his name. I said, hey, Steve, there's a giant spider. His name's Kevin. It, that wasn't nice. And the spider's coming down. I said, the biggest spider I've ever seen in my life, it's coming down toward your bed. And he's like, are you serious? Remember, it's in the dark. He rolls off his bed, pulls the bedding off, pulls the mattress off. We're going crazy. The room's a mess. We're trying. And then it, I came to. And I realized, oh, it's a dream. And we're in the dark. And I go over and I turn the light on and I said, hey, man, I'm really sorry. Like, but I, that was just a dream. And he looked at me. The only thing he said to me was this. Like, is this going to happen a lot? Like, <laughs> this is awesome. Now, maybe you've not had dreams quite like that, that feel like they're like that real, right? But you've had a collision in your life where something that was just this like concept, like doesn't, don't think, and, and then you match it up against reality and things get different. They change. When something goes from being this concept, this, and then reality hits you like, oh, wait, that's not what was true. That's not it. This is the same encounter that we're going to see the Isaiah encounter when he encounters God in this text. God is going to go in Isaiah's life from being this concept to the ultimate reality. See, Isaiah had always had God as this concept, but now he becomes this huge reality in his life. And I'm convinced many of us will learn a really valuable lesson from this passage. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 begins this way, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died. So the question is, like, who's King Uzziah? I love this. I said last week, I appreciate the Bible's integrity so much because it reveals things to us that you wouldn't put in a book that you wanted people to actually remember and follow. And we looked at that last week with Elijah and his weaknesses. This week with Isaiah, another piece of the Bible's integrity comes out, and it timestamps this story with a historical king and a year that this king died. We know, if you know your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, that King Uzziah was a really good king, very prosperous. He led the, the nation through the most prosperous time that they had had, a time of peace. Everything was good. But then he got complacent. And as King Uzziah gets complacent, he begins to make decisions that are not that good, and his health begins to wane, and all of a sudden he dies. Now you've got Isaiah. Now Isaiah is part, part of the royal family. Isaiah was well-known, well-spoken, respected, had a wonderful reputation. Everybody knew who he was. You're not talking about a guy coming out of the woods to come and be this prophet. You're talking about a guy who had a following. People knew who this guy was, and he was a leader. And so when this great prosperous king dies, Isaiah is going to be thinking, okay, well, what's next? Who's the next leader? We got to think about this strategically. We got to put the right things in place. And that's where his mind is going when he finds himself in the temple worshiping and he encounters God in this powerful way. And God gives him this miraculous. And by miraculous, I mean not normal. He gives him this miraculous vision that changes his life forever. And in this vision, he describes it this way. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. These are angel-like creatures. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. With the death of this earthly king, Isaiah gets a vision of a heavenly king that will never die. 
And when he gets this vision, these angel-like creatures, they make this statement. And as Isaiah comes to understand the significance of this statement, it changes his life forever. The statement is this idea of holiness and glory. And so you see, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Well, let's define a couple of our terms. What does holy mean? Well, the Hebrew word for holy means to be set apart. It's altogether different, over and above. And so what he's saying is God is holy. He is set apart. He's different from all of creation, unlike anything else that's ever been created. God is holy. Now, in English, when we want to emphasize something, there's a lot of different ways we can do it. You can underline something. Like if you borrowed a book from me, you know I'm like, I butcher books. I like physical books. I'm not big on reading on a screen. And so I get my physical book. I like to have a pen and I write in my books. And so if you've ever borrowed a book from me, you know I underline things I want to remember. I write page numbers. I write in the margins. I I butcher them because I'm emphasizing something. Other ways you can do it is if you're typing something, you'll bold a sentence, you'll highlight something. You can do the most annoying way to emphasize something, and that's through a text message when you all caps the whole text message. It's like the most annoying thing in the world. But people do that to emphasize things, right? In the Hebrew language, there's only one way to emphasize something, and you would repeat it. You would say something and immediately say it again if you wanted emphasis for your readers or your listeners. So fast forward to your New Testament. This is why you would see Jesus doing things like this. Jesus would come and he would say, well, truly, truly, I say to you. Why is he doing that? Well, he's emphasizing. What I'm about to say is very true and you need to hear it. Truly, truly. He uses the word that we would translate amen. So what he's doing is he's putting amen that we put at the end of our prayers. He's putting it at the beginning. And he's saying, amen, amen, I say to you. Amen simply means it is true. So it is true. It is true. What I'm about to say to you, you want to listen to. Well, there's only one characteristic in your entire Bible that gets elevated to the third level. And if you read your whole Bible, you'll recognize the Bible never says, merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God Almighty. The Bible never says, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. The Bible never says, just, just, just is the Lord God Almighty. The Bible only uses one word at that third level of emphasis to set it aside from everything else that we know about God, and it's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are different. You are set apart. You are not just different. You're not just holy, holy. You are holy, holy, holy. And that's the type of emphasis you didn't read anywhere. You never had to say something three times, but when you're describing the holiness of God, how different he is from his creation, how different he is from sinful people, you are saying he is the holy one, set apart, different from everyone ever. And now he says, because of his holiness, then everything that's ever been created is filled with his what? Glory. And what does glory mean? Well, glory, the Hebrew word for glory means heavy or weighty, right? It, it's, it has this idea of significance. So because God is holy, 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 everything in creation is all about his significance. It points to how significant he is because he is holy. This concept is what begins to change the life of Isaiah. And it does that because he'd always known God as this concept. Now he sees all of it comes in verse one when it says, I saw the Lord. If you underline or highlight, I would underline or highlight that in your Bible. I had heard about the Lord. I'd been taught about the Lord. I'd spoken about the Lord, but now I see him in his holiness and everything is about his glory, his significance. And it changed things for him because in his life, much like in ours, he had ascribed many different things with glory, with significance in his life. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This is not a snow cone. I wish it was. (laughs) Picture that this tub here is like 
your life. It represents your life. And so the things that you would put in this tub carry significance to you. They mean something, and they should. This is not me saying that they should mean something to you. They should mean something to you. But you ascribe a certain amount of weight, significance, glory to certain things in your life. We all do it. And so you might say, hey, if I were to look at your life, and so one of the ways to gauge this too, if you're like, well, I've heard this story. I don't really have a whole lot to learn about this. Well, follow with me. What would your kids say looking back on their childhood growing up? If I were to ask, what was, you know, like there's going to come a time where I sit with a lot of the kids when they're getting ready to get married. We do premarital counseling and we cover this session. It's called family of origin where we talk about you (laughs) and the impact that you've had. And it's scary because it scares me. I'm dreading that day for my kids. Because this idea of like, what was the most important thing to your family? What did your family ascribe the most glory to? What was the heaviest thing to them? How would your kids answer that? Let's go ahead and ask them real quick. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. It's messed up. All right. But we do. We ascribe it. So you might say, for me, it's our marriage. And so many people might say, man, the most thing we gave glory to was the marriage of my parents. It, it was important. You know, it carried significance. Okay, well, you might say, you know, for us, it was a bigger one. It was finances. We worked hard, and we wanted to make sure that we were comfortable. We could retire so that we could leave an inheritance to our children's children. We just really wanted to make sure, and so we got baby shark for that. I took these from my four-year-old. They are going to be returned, right? And so you might say that. You might say, no, you know, for us, it is our kids, and, and it's our kids. It's our, their education, and so we want to make sure our kids get good grades, go to the best schools, pick the best college. That is like always the most important thing. And so, if you grew up in our home, you'd know the thing that got the glory was our education and our growth. And you might say that that's what it was. Other people might come and say, no, it wasn't so much education; it was sports. And so, if you wanted to know the most important thing in my family, what we talked about more than anything else, it was sports. That's what received the glory, and especially youth sports. I mean, if we had something going on, everything else took a second seat to our games or our practices or traveling to make sure that we were at a game. That was what was most important to us. That's what got the glory for us, youth sports. Other people might come and say, you know, it was church. We were a big part of our church, and so you got the blue Ninjago duck, right? And that was what was important to us. And so church carried significance, and it was there. Not necessarily more important than anything else. They all kind of had equal weight. It was a thing we did. We went. We participated in church. It's kind of this thing. You might say, you know, for us, it was building memories, right? We, no, no, for us, it was traveling. We could build memories at home, but for us, we loved to travel. And like when we had a trip planned, everything else took a second seat to this important trip. And then other people might come along and say, no, for us, it was Jesus. Jesus, we talked about him a lot. We did family devotions. We, we went to church. We sang songs. We went to camp. We went to youth group trips. It was the most important. Jesus was significant. And so he should, in theory, have the most glory. He should be the most glorious thing, way more than everything else. But when we evaluate our life, he just kind of seems to be a part of it. Important. He's a part of our life, but he kind of has the same amount of weight as everything else. So we ascribe some glory to Jesus, but also to these other things. And Jesus, you're really important, but when I got a youth sports trip, and we got a tournament, we're not coming to church because we can watch online. What's missing one Sunday? No big deal. We're going to go to the sports game. Or when we're traveling on vacation, we like to sleep in on Sundays and make breakfast. Why would we look for a church in the town that we're going on vacation to to visit and actually make sure that our kids know that we worship Jesus? Because it's equal, right? I mean, Jesus is important, but he's just kind of like, he's one of the things. And you wouldn't really know he's heavier than anything else because everything gets kind of equal glory in our life. This was Isaiah's life before that. And then Isaiah gets this encounter where he doesn't just go from God being this concept. He sees the Lord for who he is. And he sees that God is holy and that God deserves the glory. 
And when he sees that, he's undone. Look at how he describes it. He goes on in the text. And he says, when he saw the Lord, he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But now my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Everything will be different now. Because I know who deserves the glory in all of creation, including my life. I know who the only holy one is. And in that moment, he realized that holiness was an an, an attribute of God that did not benefit him the way that other attributes of God benefited him. This is an interesting thing in the Bible when you track this, as being the only thing repeated three times doesn't have a direct benefit to us other than we know that our God is the holy one who's set apart. Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher from long ago, described it this way. He said this, the power of God is something that you could get excited about selfishly because it benefits you. Oh, I have a powerful God. The wisdom of God is something that you can actually get excited about selfishly because it could benefit you too. Oh, I have a wise God who's going to solve my problems and give me guidance. You could even get excited about the mercy of God selfishly because it's a benefit to you. Oh, now I get to get rid of all of my guilt because of the mercy of my God. But holiness is of no use at all. God's holiness is of no benefit to you. It's nothing but a threat because it exposes that you are not the holy one and you do not deserve the glory. Anyone who worships God's holiness and adores God's holiness is loving him just for who he is in himself because it is of no help to you. It is simply he is the one who deserves the worship. You see, when that happens, like Isaiah, when God's glory impacts your life, it changes everything. You look at someone whose life says, yeah, I go to church. I know who Jesus is. And you look at someone who encounters the glory of God, and it's different. It gets everywhere. The glory of God is heavier than everything. Everything else gets out of the way. Nothing is stopping it. It gets all over everything in your life. God's glory is what's most important. And so how do you know that that's what's most important in your life? Well, think about it. Look at what happens to Isaiah. I don't deserve anything, and I don't know how to draw near to you because you're so holy, and I can't be around you. Remember when Moses said, I want to see your glory, God. And God said, it's too much for you. You can't see it. You'll die. But I want to see it. So he hides him in the little cove of a rock and covers him up, and God says, I'm going to pass by, it, and you're going to just see a glimpse. And he just sees this little glimpse of the shoulder of God, and what happens? His face glows for, for days. And now... We have this opportunity to see his glory. And what happens? Well, look at how it describes it. It says, then one of the seraphim, one of these angels, it flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said this, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So God took care of what Isaiah was powerless to take care of on his own. God said, I'll take care of drawing near to you when you can recognize my holiness and my glory then I will draw near to you. I will take care of your sins. And that changed everything in his life. So let me ask you, is that true of your family? Is that true in your home, in your marriage? Is that true in your life? It changes things. So now we don't say, where are we going on vacation and what are we going to do? It's like, okay, well, as we go on vacation, as mom and dad, how can we, in this trip, doing this thing together, it might sound cheesy and corny, but it's reality. How can we position ourselves, even going on a trip, to give God the most glory. What school should our kids go to? A Christian school, public school, homeschool? Have you ever asked the question, sit back and say, have we even prayed about this? Like, God, where is it that you need our kids to go so that you receive the most glory? Because you're the holy one. What job should I take? What neighborhood should we move to? All of these questions 
to sit back and give a rhythm to your family life where your kids remember. I know what was most important in my family's life. It was Jesus because every decision that my family ever made, we paused and prayed and asked God, would you put us in a position to give you the most glory? Whatever you want us to do, we're going to make the decision that would give you the most glory because you are the heaviest thing in this family. You weigh more than all these other things. You're no longer a concept. You're a reality. And that changes all of our lives. J.I. Packer described it this way, holiness, our pursuit of holiness. It's always the saved sinner's response of gratitude for grace received. When God does for us what we can't do for ourselves in Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, died for our sins, resurrected, defeated death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and gave us a mission, gave us the Holy Spirit living in us, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and we live in gratitude for that because he deserves the glory in our family and in our lives. See, when you see this, When you see God this way, like Isaiah did, God no longer has to squeeze into your agenda or your calendar or your way of doing things. Now it's reversed and you fit into what he wants and what he wants you to do. Notice that God asks this question after Isaiah is changed forever. God says, who will go for us? Who will we send? And when he encounters the glory of God in such a powerful way, his only response should be what our response is to everything God wants from us. It's this, here am I. Send me, because no one else deserves the glory that you deserve because no one else is holy, holy, holy. I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything, God. Let me close this way. Tim Keller, a well-known author and preacher, describes an instance in his life back in 1970 as a high schooler. He was at a camp and a lady got up to do this devotion and she changed his life with a question. It's a powerful question. When I read it, it changed me as well. She gave an illustration and she said, let's say that the distance between the earth and the sun was reduced to the width of a single sheet of paper. Okay, so you have this single sheet of paper. Okay, she said, if that were true, then the, the, the width of our entire galaxy would be a stack of single sheets of paper 70 feet high. It would go 70 feet up. Picture that. And if that were true, then the size of our universe would be a stack of single sheet paper that goes 350 miles high. Think about how big that is. And then she said this, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his mouth. He holds all of that together with his words. And then she asked this question, is that the kind of God that you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Is that the God that you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? No. That's the kind of God who comes and says, who will go for us? Who will live this way in this culture? Who will be a God-honoring, Christ-like family? Who will make decisions that honor the Lord in the midst of a culture that's doing anything but that? Who will raise their kids that might look a little bit different than the rest of the culture raising their kids? Who will choose me over sports? Who will choose me over money? Who will choose me over dreams? Who will choose me over career? Who will choose me over my own personal pleasures and desires? And our response to the holiness and glory of God should be, here we are, God send us, we'll do that. And we'll look different and we'll make an impact because it's all for your glory. May it be said of us, when people look back at our lives, when people look back at the way that we raised our family, the way that we lived our lives, that we were people who stepped back and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth, my life included, is full of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the grace 
to forgive us, to atone for our sins, to give us a vision and a mission for our lives, to call us to be different and to give us the strength and the power to do so. God, thank you that you did not call us to live different and leave us alone to do it. You came and did for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves, and we thank you for that. Father, as we have opportunities this coming week to maybe change things the way that they've been done in our family for so long, to maybe sit with our kids and say, we haven't been doing this well, but going forward, as for us, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Would you give us the courage to have those conversations, the humility to apologize for the mistakes that we made, and the power to continue moving forward to give you all of the glory and the honor. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion. We do this every week. and It's an awesome opportunity for us to really thank God for that incredible grace that he gave us in Jesus. Communion's available in the back of the rooms. As you came in, you can grab it. Don't feel weird. Every week we forget it. And so if you've got to get up and go grab it, go grab it. But here's the thing, two things. You can take it individually. You just need time to say, God, I've not been giving you the glory in my life, and I need to change that. And so I'm going to do that from now on. And you can, you can just have this time with God as you take communion. But what a cool opportunity with the kids in the room for dads to pray a blessing over your family. That your family from this day forward would be characterized as a family who gave all the glory and all the honor to the Lord. That you would make much of him. That you would point to him as being the holy, holy, holy one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for communion. Thank you for doing for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,